0: worship team, forgive me today. I don't have a voice. I did something yesterday I wasn't supposed to do, and I got caught by my wife. I trimmed a hedge in our backyard. It's about 15 feet out of control high. Took me all day. And when I came in, I couldn't say anything except, "Ah." So I'm trying to regain my strength today. I feel like I had surgery all over again. But I got it done. And that was the key, so... I'm paying for it today. I'm so sorry. We're in Titus chapter 2. There is a truth that we believe that's so critically valuable to us. And Paul, who's writing this letter to Titus, and remember this letter being written to Titus, was intended to introduce Titus to all the believers on the island of Crete that they were going to transfer their allegiance to a spiritual leader named Titus, and he was there to clean up the mess of confused doctrine. And so uh, this letter wasn't just written to Titus, it would be read to all the believers on the island of Crete as an introduction to who Titus is and to the topics of which he has instructed Titus to clear up and to preach so everyone would know uh, where they're going, what they're supposed to believe, who they're supposed to listen to. We talked the first week about the fact of who do you decide that you yield yourself to that you would listen to? Who's, Who's the instructor of your life? Where do you get your truth, that which you base your life on? Then we worked through to chapter 2, and he says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Not only are you going to teach right doctrine, but you need to speak the things that are proper for sound doctrine. In other words, you need to complement sound doctrine with how you speak and what you say. Then he instructs uh, that the older men... Uh, if they're going to uh, speak doctrine and compliment doctrine, they need to be sober, reverent, temperate, uh, sound in the faith, in their love, and their patience. Uh, Older women, likewise, they have that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, and that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may be, may not be blasphemed. That's kind of where we went through last week. I want to pick it up here at verse 6. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. We said that means to be serious. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. The idea of pattern is the idea of consistency. It's the idea of ongoing demonstration of good works. Paul uh, referenced uh, just that idea that in, in uh, Philippians chapter 3 Uh, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Uh, There needs to be uh, someone that establishes how we should walk. Uh, uh, In our church, we are certainly longing for and praying that uh, those of us who are on the uh, sort of the edge heading into eternity, some of us, that we would be uh, faithful in that pattern. But my prayer, my longing is that those of you who are younger than I am will take that pattern up and carry that pattern along the rest of your life because this church in the future needs you to be that person. Then you have, uh, to young men, the uh, exhortation here to not only do that but in all things, verse seven. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern uh, in doctrine, showing integrity, uh, showing reverence, and showing incorruptibility. Interesting. There's three uh, ideas here about how to handle doctrine: showing the integrity in doctrine, reverence in doctrine, and the in- incorruptibility in doctrine. The idea of integrity here is the idea of honesty or soundness. Again, he uses that word soundness through this text already. It's that idea of uh, of honesty and and uh, to uh, obviously to to show a truth about what you say you believe. If you say you believe something, then be that. If you say that you uh, uh, agree on certain truths that we teach here, then live that. You know, it, it's the integrity of not falsifying what you say you believe just for the sake of blending in and being a part of something that really you don't care that much about when you go home. I've never seen a day where we live in where everyone's all over the map on saying, I believe this, and they do everything else. It's amazing how when you go onto the the media and look at uh, all the different public uh, venues for media, and you just see people who uh, say one thing at church, but then they say things that are so edgy and so uh, misunderstood on their public venues that you wonder, wait a minute, is that really who they are? And we can sometimes send those uh, cross signals. Then he says reverence and doctrine. I I take that to mean holding biblical truth. Now, we're talking to uh, younger men. Holding biblical truth in your heart as the highest importance. That's what it means to have a reverence for doctrine. It's... What I believe, the truth that I believe in, it is that which I embrace. It is of the highest importance in my life. It is why I live. It is why I breathe. It's the truths that have changed my life, and I stand on them. Well, then he adds incorruptibility in doctrine. This is one's strong stand that cannot and will not be shaken. We have many illustrations in the Bible of this, obviously. I I immediately thought, and I'm going to turn just because I want to read it, but it's in Daniel chapter 2. I, I was. Uh, I'm always struck by the story of Daniel and his friends. This particular statement, we all know some of these words, but they're so worth taking a moment to review them. In Daniel chapter 2, You know the story of uh, Nebuchadnezzar so big on himself that uh, he was to put up an image. And uh, on this uh, image that he had set up, verse 6 says, Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. So at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute harp, lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations and languages, fell down and worshiped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews... They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, symphony, in symphony with all kinds of music, that they should fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Well, there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. So he confronts them. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Sounds brash, doesn't it? Then he says, if that is the case, our God... Whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. There's this, there's this strong statement from young men who are able to say what we believe. We are so absolutely encouraged and strengthened in what we believe. Nothing can sway us from that, not even the threat to our own life. Now, you know, when you're single and you have no one else to worry about, maybe that's not such a tough thing in that moment. But if you're a family man and you have kids and a wife and children, that might be another whole other ballgame. It's amazing how when something happens to our kids, it's just, again, so amazing. I say it often because I've seen it so many times in my own family. But there's, there's this uh, tendency with parents sometimes that when their kids make bad choices and go down sinful roads, it's amazing how parents, in order to uh, maintain some connection relationship with their kids, they will accommodate They'll pat their kids on the back and say, it's okay, honey, it's okay, whatever. You know, uh, if this is the choice you've made, we love you still. And there's that sort of sense of affirmation that still comes when we lower our standards to accept the low standards of someone else in our own family. We're never going to be tested or tempted uh, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all on our own. Satan always goes after what is most dear to us, and that's where the temptations take place. So there's this sense as young men take this into their heart as a, at a young age, uh, Paul knows that it, it's such an important thing that it, the younger you are the, to when you first understand truth, that you determine in your heart that nothing will sway you from that truth because it will be attacked. You can count on it. Sound speech, Then he ends this section, sound speech that cannot be condemned for young men. That, that our words are good and kind and true, obviously. If, if Trump could uh, say uh, nice words to people, uh, we would all like him a lot more, wouldn't he? He might even get a few Democrats to go with him. He just can't do it. And so obviously he's a great object lesson to all of us about how to talk to people. How to treat people. So then he, uh, he uh, goes on to bond servants in verse 9. He makes reference to, the, to bond servants. We don't quite understand that in our culture, but I'll, I'll change it to employers, employees and employers. Let's, let's do that because we understand that. Exhort employees. Can we do it that way? To be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing good fidelity. I worked for my dad many times uh, when I was going to college. My dad uh, was a foreman, general foreman of uh, Young, at Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company in uh, Burns Harbor, Indiana. And I would, I would get summer jobs and make pretty good money. And I, I worked for my dad this one time. And uh, you're working on the clock. And uh, dad gave me one of the lowest jobs you could have in the mill, and that's what I did. So I worked labor, and I, I cleaned up everything, everybody's mess. I, I cleaned it up. That was my job. And so I had a few other guys that were just a notch above my, what I was doing, and uh, they're older guys, and uh, they would work me over because I was the general manager's son, and so they give me everything clean every toilet I could find that was plugged up and, you know, throw away all the Playboy magazines and all the nonsense and all the trash and whatever else. You can't imagine what goes on in some of those places. So I'm just doing my job. And they would, they would. Uh, if it was day shift, these guys would, would uh, they had a the whole thing. They would get their jobs done early. They would work like crazy men, get their jobs done and have me with them. And, uh, you know, that's 7 o'clock, and by before 3 o'clock, which is the time when they can clock out, so around 1, 1 o'clock, they're done. And many of these guys would just go home, and then they would give me their cards and expect me to punch them out at 3 o'clock. And my dad would come along and say, where's Joe? Where's uh, Fred? Where? And he would ask questions. I'm like, uh, well, they left. What do you mean they left? Well, they they left. Here's their time cards. And I'd give them to my dad. Well, that didn't go over very well. And the next time my dad saw them, he dealt with them the way a foreman should. But my dad chewed me out. Why would you take their cards? Don't even let your hand take them. If someone wants to cheat and break the rules, don't accommodate them by trying to be nice and friendly and you know kind of go along with it even though you don't agree with them because you had to stay. Don't do that. I learned at a young age that you know you don't you don't join in in order to absorb the the awkwardness and help someone feel better about their bad choices. You can't do that. So obviously that was interesting, but here uh, that was the case for bond servants, making sure that they are in this case employees that you treat your employer, employer as well. But notice, I, I wanted to get to the very last part of verse ten because this is the motivation for all of this. We could go back to verse uh, verse 2 through 10, and this phrase covers all of it. Don't do these things or do these things that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. The bottom line here, as Paul's writing and instructing these things, is this, that every one of us, old to young, every one of us, that we would... Uh, live our lives in such a way that we would adorn, I love that word, we would adorn the doctrine of God. The truths that I say I believe in, my life will either adorn those truths or tarnish those truths. If I say I believe in something and then I live a different way, I I bring disgrace to the, the one who's truths are, are represented, the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word, and I tarnish them. I, I deliberately uh, 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 can't showcase God's Word because I'm not living according to His Word. That's why this is so critically important, going back to verse 1, that we speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine so that we can adorn the doctrine that we believe in. Well, not only that, then you have uh, Another thing about sound doctrine here, sound doctrine, that doesn't just adorn, isn't adorned by just uh, uh, how we live. Sound doctrine is received, if you will, through grace. We sang about grace a bit in some of our songs. Just uh, notice what he says. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, we have this uh, understanding that, and I want to use it this way: that there are uh, sound doctrines received through grace, and how wonderful grace is here, as He's reminding them. Two things about grace, He says in verse eleven. He says, "Grace brings salvation." And he says, grace has appeared to all men. You know, this this idea that uh, we have knowledge of salvation because of God's grace, that God graciously would reveal himself to us. But not only that, he says that God has graciously uh, brought this salvation. Uh, he has appeared to all men. Everyone has a chance to know who he is. He hasn't hidden himself from anyone. But he says to these believers here that, Grace teaches the following things. It says, verse 12, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and and, and worldly lust, that we should live, how? Soberly, righteously, and godly. see a lot of repetition here with the word soberly. That we would live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for, and then the second thing here, we are to look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of Christ. I I just know this. It's that uh, plaque on the wall that my grandma always had. I've told you a hundred times about it. I don't need to repeat it. But that that plaque that says, uh, gave reference to the fact that Jesus is coming sometime and how you live and what you do. Uh, Don't be doing the wrong thing when Christ returns. Uh, There's this idea here that we should be uh, looking I, I I think more and more. I feel like I'm doing that, aren't you? I feel like I'm looking more and more upward as things get darker. I, I, as I see the culture just disintegrating around us, the I don't know, just the uh, maybe from my childhood, my eyes were skewed with childhood uh, visions and dreams. But as a young person, I always, I was always very patriotic. I was always very uh, enthused about moral things and good things and. Uh, it seems as though everything we watch, everything we hear, everything we touch is tarnished with a twist or a perversion to it. And so when you, when you see that around you, I don't know about you, but I tend to be looking up a lot more than I used to. But no, notice the motivation for that. He gives three things here. We should be uh, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing. Uh, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us. There's the first thing. When I remind myself of that, that causes me to want to look up. That that He might redeem us from every lawless deed. Lord, there is so much lawlessness in this world. Help, help me to avoid that. And uh, He has redeemed us from everything through His blood. And then purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works, Lord, do a continual work in my own heart. Keep me pure in a tarnished world. And, and He does this, and that's why we look to Him. Then He uh, ends the section in verse fifteen with "Speak these things." He's coming back to referencing back the word teaching us. He says, "Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you." Titus, get out there where everybody's thinking every kind of thought. Everybody's all over the map theologically. There's no solid right truth right now. I need you to go out and speak the things and exhort uh, people and rebuke with all authority, especially those who are teaching wrong doctrine, and let no one despise you. Don't let anyone take you down or uh, try to move you out of your position. It's a powerful statement from Paul to Titus. It reminds me that I believe in my own calling, that there has to be a strength that comes out of your life that says, I believe what I believe. No one's going to change that. I'm going to hold my ground on that. Now, if I'm wrong in how I practice my belief, I need to be addressed about that. Maybe I'm sometimes wrong. But in terms of what I do believe, I'm going to stand my ground, and nothing's going to change that. Now I want to get to the heart uh, to finish this off this morning. It's in chapter three, because now he shifts from instruction to leadership to the remind to a reminder to leadership about certain things. He says, "Remind them uh, to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Then he goes on, we'll come back to that in a second. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. I'm thinking about uh, this statement, and I'm thinking about the culture that these believers live in. I'm trying to parallel that in my mind oftentimes with the culture I live in. It's not quite the same. We think that this is a bad culture around us. It's nothing to compare with the culture that believers lived in in that first century. I I was thinking about the fact that how could Paul demand so much from believers that they would have to submit themselves under the rule of Nero, for example, for example. If you just do a study on Nero, uh, I could just number of He was thoroughly pagan. He was morally perverted. He was despotic. He was cruel, oppressive, murderous, unjust, homosexual, sadistic, corrupt to the core. And here's Paul writing to believers and saying, "Be subject to rulers and authorities." It was not a popular statement. And obviously you've got to process that and say, okay, what what does that mean? Why is he even saying this? And I want to sort of remind us that it was a common practice in the day for Jews who lived outside of Israel to form, you know, tight-knit communities. And they were often reluctant to submit themselves to local laws and authorities. And they would often treat the surrounding culture with contempt and disdain. So much so that Paul understood this. So believers who have been called by Christ out of Judaism, but also called out of worldliness, were to be kind and gentle, which is what he's suggesting, obedient toward authorities, but at the same time, not compromising their faith. And as Paul writes this to Titus, Paul knows that the motive in his heart is that he wants to protect believers from the kind of persecution that Jews were experiencing in their cultures because of their own hatred toward the secular culture. And so Paul's not saying at all that we should have those hateful attitudes or look at, uh, look at the secular culture with a sense of uh, contempt because they're all sinners. And sometimes churches around us do that. Paul wants them to recognize that if you're going to have an impact on your community around you, if you're going to somehow make inroads into unsaved people's thinking, then you can't be a group of people who have this standoffish, isolated, condemning attitude toward the culture around you, not and even in toward leadership. So Paul wanted to protect Jews from being persecuted for the wrong reasons. If you're persecuted for the gospel, Peter writes, rejoice. If you're persecuted for good things, rejoice. But if you're persecuted because you were a thief or you were doing something to break the law, that's no reason to rejoice. You you deserve what you get. And so Paul recognized that a church, if it's going to effectually evangelize in a community, has to treat the citizens of that community and even the leaders of that community in a right way and not treat them with contempt. And thus, that's why he writes this. And he says, verse 1, we need to obey. Then he says, uh, be ready for every good work and so on. He has this list. I don't know about you, I'm not always ready for every good work. Sometimes I, 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 I'm just not. I, I'm not always ready to do the right thing, I, uh, but I need to strive for that. I never know how God's going to use a situation or use a certain thing in a certain per- person's life. I'm so, uh, I, I, I'm so glad that certain times in my life when I've been prompted by the Lord. Yesterday, uh, uh, Marilyn went over and was prompted to go speak to our neighbor because they've had a traumatic thing happen this last weekend, and she wanted to see how they were doing. And, and that conversation, though it may seem like it didn't have a deep impact, may have a huge impact later on. You just don't know. It's just so important to uh, be ready for whatever Christ calls us to do. He says, speak evil of no one, verse 2. Be peaceable. Uh, I I don't know. In the context, I I, I almost feel as though he's writing about uh, this relationship with with authorities. Maybe when he says, be peaceable, I'm thinking about how much sometimes people want to argue and fuss and fight over issues and Sometimes we want to take sides and obviously demonstrating, getting into a demonstration in public arenas. Obviously, we have to be very careful as Christians that we don't become antagonistic as we're demonstrating because I think that would be stepping over the line. In fact, arguing with someone is really powering up, isn't it? You're really trying to one-up someone else when you argue with them because you want to win the argument, so that's what happens. Us husbands and wives do that, don't we? Not a good thing, is it? When we start arguing about something, about something we said, and that's not true, that is true, blah, blah, blah. We go through that back-and-forth thing, and I'm right, you're wrong, you're wrong, I'm right. And as we do that, we're not pleasing Christ at all. And so as he makes that statement, he reminds us he says, be gentle, showing all humility to all men. It's just the opposite of how we think as Americans. Be humble. Be gentle. Then he uh, gives us, actually, he finally gives an outline. It's very hard to outline the book of Titus, but now he gives us a little outline, which we can follow, starting at verse 4. Or sorry, verse 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish. Now, he's going to talk to us for a second about who we once were. Then in verses 4 through 7, he's going to speak about who we are now. And then uh, from verse in verse 8, he's going to speak to us about who we need to continue being. So let's take a look and see what he says in verse 3. For we ourselves were also once, and he gives a list here, foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. I know when you read the Scripture, what I do sometimes, I try to put myself into a, into the text and say, is this me, does this uh, describe me? And some words do, and some words I don't think do very well. But uh, when he says foolish, he's speaking uh, that first word foolish. There's a presumption here, first of all, that uh, that that those of us who are now Not this, we are saved or unsaved, but we used to be this. And we have to agree that it's for everyone, saved and unsaved. When he says, you were once foolish. Can I just say that uh, sometimes words can cut to the heart and sometimes we can just read over them because we don't want to think about what they mean. But the, the deepest meaning of that word foolish comes out of Proverbs. And it has to do with the fact that if you choose to not believe in Or if you choose to just ignore, if you choose to sort of lightly step in and step out, I agree on this, I don't agree with that, I like this, I don't like this, and sort of pick and choose how you want to believe, if that's your mindset. Really, the word foolish has to do with those who are really not following the truth of God as God gave it. Foolishness is saying either there is no God or I'm not interested in God or I don't need God. And, and, and so all of us at one time were foolish. The word disobedient uh, he's not talking about, And although it includes being disobedient to parents, disobedient to other authorities, teachers, and leaders, and employers, and whatever. We can f- lump all kinds of stuff in that word. But the bottom line, disobedience is, again, rejection of the truth makes us disobedient. If you're not going to listen and follow the truth that God's given us, we are already disobedient to the very creator of our life. And the word deceived is probably the scariest word here. Deceived. Can I take you and show you how serious this is? Uh, uh, first of all, I want to read a text in 2nd, just two or three pages back, in 2nd Thessalonians. I want to read this to you in chapter 2. This idea of being deceived, because I think some folks don't understand this. You know, people can deceive us. There's deception in our lives on many different levels. But this is talking spiritually. This is talking about the the very depth of our soul being deceived. And literally, you'll read here in this text, which is a kind of futuristic text, but it's already happening. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, speaking about the coming of a lawless one, although this theme's already here, it says, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved and for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Now there are People today who will stand their ground on the lie, which is the lie, is that we don't need Jesus, that Jesus isn't the Son of God, that Jesus didn't die for sin, uh, that Jesus can't save anyone, and that there is no eternal heaven or hell. Uh, all kinds of things you can throw into that into that equation, but obviously it's that sense of oh, these are not real truths, and obviously. Uh, how we got here is a mystery, but certainly didn't come here from God doing something. And there's this constant denial of what you and I would call truth. So much so that over in 2 John chapter 5, we have a parallel statement which sums it all up. You can mark it down in your uh, other text if you want to jump over here. But in, in, 1, John, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, it says this. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Unless you've been delivered by the truth, you are absolutely sitting in a state of deception. Unless you have been delivered by the light of truth in Jesus Christ, you are living life, and even though you think you're in charge and in control and and uh, you're trying to sort of work through your life and make your own decisions and take care of yourself and your family and your things and all of that, and you, you're kind of just going down the road existing, I want you to know that you're existing sort of, but you're existing in a deception. The deception is that you think that somehow it's all going to work out, turn out okay, and somehow at the end. But how is it that people do that, but they don't see down the road that they are eventually going to die? And some actually go into death saying, I believe what I believe, and I'm not changing. And they stubbornly go into what they think is a nothingness that they have believed all their life, which was the lie. And they wake up in hell. Because they refused to believe the truth. They were deceived. It's most—it's it's such a sad state that people are under the sway of this evil one and all he's doing is constantly spinning deceit in our life to get us away from the truth. We once were this, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy and hate, hateful, hating one another. Uh, truly there is none righteous, no, not one, Truly, uh, for all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? That's who we once were, folks, right? Now, most of us who are saved today can look back and say, absolutely. I know who I was, and I know what's happened in my life. I know one time I, I was certainly like this. I was caught in this. I was held in this. But I've been set free by Christ. Who we are now, verses 4 through 7. Go back and read that to us this morning. Wonderful truths here. Who we are now. And he says to us, but when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man appeared. I'm going to take this as we go. I have to do this. So there's this starting block. Something took us from where we once were to where we are today. And it's this starting with, he says, the appearance of Christ's kindness And love. Those are just nice words for the word grace. The appearance of Christ's kindness and love. The fact that Jesus Christ chose to kindly appear to us and reveal to us his love. And now we know that because we've seen him. Can I have you just do a little exercise in your mind just for a second? As you go home today, fill in the blank on this, would you? If it wasn't for God's grace, write it out. If it wasn't for God's grace, fill in the blank. I can tell you, if it wasn't for God's grace, I wouldn't be here this morning. If it wasn't for God's grace, who miraculously got me off that table and brought me back to life, that's God's grace working. If it wasn't for God's grace, Marilyn wouldn't have her husband back. If it wasn't for God's grace... I, I wouldn't know how to define truth. I, w- I wouldn't know that I could be so secure in this truth that Jesus Christ has revealed Himself, that God of the universe has personally revealed Himself to me. It starts with that, right? He has to somehow uh, reveal Himself, and as He chooses to do that to me, you know, how that's changed my life and how it continues to affect my life. It starts there, He says. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, then he says, not by works, in verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done. There's nothing I can do to cause this to happen or to, to earn somehow God's favor. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. No, 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 no. But according to His mercy, it says, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. He's straightening out, first of all, the whole doctrinal issue of law and grace. See, you know, here's Paul reminding all these Cretan believers who were Jewish mainly in their life, who now have adopted Christ, uh, some belief in Christ into their Jewish uh, belief system, but they were still living by legalisms in order to somehow impress God. And here he's just saying, it's not by works of righteousness, nothing we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And then he tells us how, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. God sees us just like we are. He sees you this morning. He sees you just as you are. It's impossible for you and I to see ourselves the way God sees us. I'm thankful for that. You know why? Because if I was going to establish a recipe for grace in my life, I would so soft sell my sin. I would so make myself so much nicer than I actually am. I I would try to package myself in this. And and I think we all kind of live our life like that. We want to put our best foot forward and show the best of who we are normally to others, hopefully. But even in doing that, you know, there's this sense that God sees me stripped down, naked, absolutely every thought, every feeling, everything about me inside and out. He sees it all. He sees how ugly I am on the inside and yet he has by his mercy chosen to work toward my life and reveal himself to me I can't earn that but by his mercy he saved us according to his mercy he saved us it says here through the washing of regeneration and uh Renewing of or by the Holy Spirit. There's this uh, washing of regeneration. is a phrase. It's uh, when you look it up and realize all the different uh, uh, folks who try to you know sort of explain that to us. It really, really the bottom line here. He's talking about regeneration. The washing of regeneration is this fact that I have had to be uh, born in Christ. I, it's a rebirth, if you will. It's a, it's a spiritual birth that has taken place in my life, John. Uh, uh, John writes about that in chapter 3 of of his gospel and Jesus speaking about uh, having to be born spiritually. It's this receiving of a new nature in our lives that has, in a sense, washed us thoroughly of, of sin as we've repented and we have this new nature in our lives. That has taken place. But then he says, and renewing of by the Holy Spirit. So you can catch both thoughts kind of in this text in Ephesians 1. I'm going to remind us, and you can mark it if you don't have it marked. It's, it's too good not to have marked in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 1. Such a deep, great truth for us as believers. If you're young, you want to have this understood. In Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 12. Says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. That's his revealing to us here, his appearance to us. After you heard the word of truth, he says, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, still in verse 13, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Of promise. So the Holy Spirit comes into our life and that's the, that's the uh, wonderful process of us spiritually being born into Christ. But then this idea of renewing is also here in the text because he says uh, in whom you are sealed and then he says in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit of God not only comes into our life and seals us with this new birth, but then the Holy Spirit constantly is with us, working to uh, keep us and hold us and, and uh, draw us to make us more like Christ. All the, way, we, all the way into glory, this is true for us and cannot be changed. Do you understand that this morning? So when he uh, tells uh, these Cretans... What this means, he's just saying here, you couldn't have earned this if you wanted to. You can't earn it by continuing in in legalism. This is all by the mercy of God. uh, His washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Then he adds this little phrase, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's just a little phrase that tells me of the sufficiency of Jesus. I thought immediately of what Jesus said in John 4:14 4, to the woman at the well. He was talking to her about life and the the what he had to offer her in her life and he he uh, used the illustration that what he had to give her was water. Uh, in a deep well, water springing up into everlasting life, an unquenchable source that was life-changing for her. And that's how he made this clear, his sufficiency to not only save us, but it's this well deep within that continually uh, works in our life to remind us constantly and daily of his presence in our lives. I am so thankful for this process as he explains this. Verse 7, he goes on and says, "...that having been justified by his grace..." We should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so you have this idea of being justified. I got to go back to Romans 5.1 and read this to us because what he says, and he says justified here by his, uh, watch what it says in Romans. Romans is going to say justified by faith. And sometimes somebody wants to argue, but all you got to do is read the rest of the scripture. In verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, why did Paul write to Titus and say, justified by grace? Well, look on down to verse 2. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. See, it's, it goes back to what he said earlier. It's, it's grace that caused the Lord to appear to us. It's grace uh, that uh, packages mercy toward us. It's grace that was offering salvation to us. It's grace that has now justified us, and it's our faith in him through that process, but it's still all of grace, never of us. So I can't say, you know what? I put my faith in Jesus. I stayed a, stayed a, made a claim to follow Jesus. I have great faith in Jesus. No, it's not about that. Faith only comes out of grace. The I has to be removed. It's, it's what he's revealed to me that has blown me away in a sense, has bowed me down. It's his grace and Simply, my choice to say, I recognize what you've done and I receive you, thank you, Lord, out of humility. So, yes, we're justified by faith, but it's faith because of his grace. The last thing he says is, us being heirs, we, go, we say this so often, that's a great truth. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life, he says. You know, it, it should be enough. It should be enough for you and for me today that Jesus Christ, who has provided this salvation, that he would guarantee us entrance into heaven for all eternity. That, that should be enough. I, I would be content with that. Just get me into heaven, Lord. But that he would add this component to eternity, that he wants to share what he has with us that we are actually called by God heirs with Jesus co-heirs with Jesus it's, so it's not just that by the skin of my teeth I'm getting to heaven it's this welcoming us to heaven with this understanding that we have this uh, to be heirs with him but what Paul wrote in Romans eight seventeen that we are joint heirs with him when I think about that that's, that intensifies it to such a full sense of blessing uh, it, it, it has to just sort of, I don't know, if you can just dwell there, it ought to somehow raise the bar at how you want to live your life because, wait a minute, I'm, I'm on track to be a joint heir with him, not just barely into heaven. I don't want to just slide into heaven. I, I, I'm setting the mark There's a higher mark for me to be a joint heir with the perfect one, with the, the Savior of my life, to be a joint heir with him. It sounds almost like I'm insulting God but he's calling us joint heirs with him and saints that ought to raise you out of your seat and say the the expectations of God on my life are calling me to something far higher than I'm settling for right now. Verse 8 comes along. We did verse 8 a few weeks ago, but now we come back to it again in this text and it's who we must continue to be from who we are now. If you're a believer, listen to what he says. It's very simple. Verse 8. And as he uh, reminds us, this is a faithful saying. And these things I want you, Titus, to affirm constantly. And he's really, we can put your name in the same sentence there. I want you, Byron, to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. It doesn't sound real deep and profound here. He's just saying affirm constantly these things. That's, that itself is is important for us. Affirm constantly. Don't lose sight of this truth. And he says maintain good works. I, I've, I sometimes say this to people. I'm, I'm not a maintenance person. I don't do well at maintenance. So when it comes to like... A, Certain things I maintain, I try to maintain my lawnmower, for instance. I know that if I don't maintain it, it's going to bog down and not be effective the next year. So I I learned to maintain that. My dad would smack my hands if I didn't do it right and taught me to do that. So I can maintain a lawnmower. I don't maintain my car very well. I have to take it to a specialist. I'm dumb when it comes to cars. Uh, I, I know that I can clean my house, I can maintain. If you don't maintain, it's going it's to eventually get dirty and then it's going to get solid and it's going to decay. And So maintenance is important in life and maintenance certainly must be important in our spiritual life. So you can't ride on yesterday's victories spiritually. You can't, uh, you, know, you can't sort of camp out and say, well, I had a great experience at camp five years ago, and it's still living there. That, that doesn't work. Maintenance is constant. He says these things are good and profitable. And what happens is you'll never know how profitable something is. You just have to be ready. So your life has to be maintained. Your, your walk with Christ has to be maintained. Your, the truths that he's writing about here about our salvation have to be remembered and grasped and, and processed and, and kept in the forefront of our thoughts and our hearts. We need to constantly be grateful for what he's done for us. That's part of maintenance here. When you're not maintaining the stuff you have, then you've lost a sense of gratefulness for it somebody gives you something and says I want you to have this and it's something nice and if you trash it after a year or two you've just demonstrated that you really didn't care about what you were given years ago we were down in Lexington and Mandy and Philip were of course there Mandy was graduating it was her last year and uh, Dave Adams, you know, my friend Dave, he preached here a while back. Uh, Dave wouldn't have this campaign to, uh, I don't know, draw students into the school or whatever. And so he went out and bought this car. It was, it was a Volkswagen Golf, uh, G-O-L-F, a Golf, convertible. It was old. It was used. It had lots of miles on it, 70-some thousand miles. Anyway, he, he bought this Golf, and uh, it was red. And uh, it was a giveaway for the student who did the most blah, blah, blah. I forget what it was. I can't remember. Marilyn, can you? I I can't remember what it was for. I I forget what it was for. But my daughter won it. That's the bottom line. My daughter won this golf. I drove it a couple times. And I went, this is a piece of trash. (laughs) So I said to Manny, get rid of this thing before it breaks down. And it did break down a few times already. So I was like, get rid of this thing. Sell it. Get the cash. Whatever you get for it, that's way more valuable than this car is. You don't need this car. So she did use the cash for something more important. But before she sold it, I said, we can't just like, I don't want to just sell it like it is. We need to uh, maybe change the oil. <laughs> that would be good for starters. Make sure it runs properly so that when you do sell it to somebody, you don't sell them and say, well, I don't know. I don't know. Did you change the oil? I don't know. You can't do that. You can't, you can't just let it go and then, And then do that. You don't do that. That's just not right for other people. So maintain it and then deal with it however you want to. But it's obviously very important to maintain what's been given to us. Verse 14 closes this out. And let our people also learn to maintain good works. There's some repetition again, isn't there? It's one of the last things Paul wants to say. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. In this uh, whole process lesson, it's it's all about obviously uh, fleshing out what we believe and saying what we believe is so important that we're going to live a certain way, we're going to be a certain kind of people, and practically speaking, we want to remain who we are. It's that long-distance run. It's that finishing, going across the finish line. Yesterday, as I was working on my little hedge thing, I had about 25% left to do, and I was exhausted. And my mind was like, just leave it and come back tomorrow. (laughs) Something else said, I'll never get back to it tomorrow. I, I so hate what I'm doing. I've got to do it right now. And you finish the job. It hurts sometimes to cross the finish line. It, it hurts to keep going. It's, it's a strain. That's, that's what finish lines are. They're a strain. I, I don't see too many crossing the finish line like, like it was easy. I see it stressed and tough. And you keep going. And this Christian life is not supposed to get easier as we get older. That, I, that old hymn "Sweeter as the days go by, it's not sweeter. It's tougher. That should have been the theme. Struggle as the days go by. That'd be a good one. Maintenance is not easy, but maintenance is necessary. Living this Christian walk, I just want to challenge you, do not give up. And do not look for some easy way out of serving Christ and being faithful to Him. Don't look for shortcuts. Don't look for avoidances where I can stay out of the, out of the work. I, I don't want to volunteer. I don't want to get caught in that classroom. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I just want to believe Jesus, come to a nice little church, and go home. That is not maintenance. That is deadly thinking because you'll become sluggish. Your belief system will be that much less, and when the test comes, you'll fail. Let's pray together. Lord, as we uh, read your word, the challenge has been put out from Paul to Titus to the island of Crete all the way to Sugar Creek. Your word is true and good. Your word is confrontive and challenging. But your word is wonderful because your word gives life where there once was death Your word has brought freedom where there was blindness and deceit. Your word has lifted us from weariness and from deadness and frustration to optimism. The very breath of life given to us. Lord, I ask for that person today who's just going through the motions of life, I ask that you would powerfully invade their heart and their soul, tug at their soul. Reveal yourself by your grace and your goodness. Let them see you. Lord, I ask that you would draw people to yourself, and I ask that you would take those of us who have walked this walk for a long time to help us get to the finish line, to not quit but to strive and to maintain and to work and to stay faithful because, Lord, we want to compliment you. We want to adorn your truths with our lives. Help us to do that through the power of Jesus Christ. I ask that you'll save us and keep us through your great mercy and your goodness. We cast ourselves upon you today and thank you for your blessings in Christ's precious, wonderful name.